All right, so the Gospel of Mark, okay? Um, we have a, a little bit of review to start off. I'm going to put you guys a little test and see what you guys can remember. So by way of review, uh, who is the, the author of Mark? What do we know about the authorship of this Gospel that we're looking at? His name is John Mark. Okay, good. Very favored by Peter. Yep. Yeah, and Peter's, uh, the, the account that we're actually reading, right? Yes. Mark was his scribe, his amanuensis. He was taking uh, the words of Peter and uh, giving them to who? Who were the recipients, the, the audience that he was initially writing to? Romans. To the Romans. Good job, right into the Romans, the same book that we just got done studying not too long ago, and um, it was likely that he was writing from Rome to those who were also in Rome. And Mark, John Mark, writing on behalf of Peter as he's being carried along by the Holy Spirit, is writing to these Romans from Rome for what purpose? All right, Jesus is the suffering servant. We have to keep that in mind throughout, and uh, that will help us even in realizing why he's writing, what he's writing, and, and the way and the style that he's writing it, if we remember the purpose with which he is writing. And what are some of the, the key words or, or verses that we've identified in our study of the book of Mark? Immediately. Yes. Immediately. Kingdom of God. Yes, good. All right, What's that? Authority. Authority, good. Yeah, here in the next several weeks, we'll see uh, the first several chapters of Mark really highlight his authority, his authority over uh, demons, over nature, uh, his authority over sin. Uh, we see that Jesus has authority, and Mark's really highlighting that and pointing out the authority of Christ. And we identified, or I identified, I guess, Mark 10.45 is one of the key verses of the book of Mark. Mark 10.45 says, For the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. That goes right along that theme of Jesus being the suffering servant and coming to, to serve those who he loves. And then last week, we spent a little bit of time talking about the, the source of Mark. What did we learn in that latter part of last week's lesson? Where did Mark get his information? Where did the other gospel writers get their information? How does that differ from what uh, modern scholarship wants us to believe? <laughs> Amen. Yeah, not the weird explanation I had last week. Uh, the the two-source theory or the, the Q uh, document, um, that's all a bunch of baloney, and it begins with really poor presuppositions that um, these men have to have accounts that are aligning so closely because they had uh, similar human authorities outside of the fact that they were eyewitnesses or they knew eyewitnesses, and they had the Holy Spirit carrying them along as they wrote. Um, just this past week, I have, um, well, I had five different uh, commentaries that I was reading through for Mark, which is too many. And so I was glad that when I uh, was reading in one, I found a, a nod to the Q document, to what we were talking about last week. 
And they said, well, this exact phrasing is also in Luke and Mark, so they must have gotten this from the Q document. And I was thankful to be able to set aside a commentary and uh, narrow one down off my list, because that is, again, starting with really poor presuppositions and uh, not the, the kind of starting places we want to embrace, because we're going to end up with really poor ending places if we do that. All right. And our homework for last week, I know some of you weren't here, but um, was to look at the, uh, the comparable accounts in both Matthew and Luke. Did anybody happen to do that? Look at uh, the, who John the Baptist is, the baptism of John and Matthew and Luke. Um, they are quite a bit longer, and they have a, a slightly different emphasis. And um, one of the, the reasons for that emphasis is, again, the, the purpose with which you're writing. Remember that Mark's gospel was used for uh, memorizing, which is just mind-blowing to me. But it was short and succinct, and that's why we have that word immediately, 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 because he has a point that he's trying to get to, and it's really short. Um, and also, he is writing with the purpose, as Jerry mentioned, of Jesus as the suffering servant. So he doesn't go into quite as much detail um, as, as Mark and Luke and even John do when it comes to uh, Jesus's purpose as, um, as judge and coming in judgment and Mark's role in identifying Jesus as judge. And so that's one of the, the key differences between Mark's account and the others. And we'll take a little bit of time today, I think, and, and look at Luke. And next week, I think we're going to spend some time in Matthew and looking at how Matthew draws out the, the aspect of Jesus as judge uh, whereas Mark's obviously not making that his focus. All right, any other thoughts before we get into Mark 1 1? Yes. Well, it's interesting because presenting Jesus as the servant, he, he totally ignores anything about his existence before he comes preaching in childhood or birth. Mm -hmm. But then he also presents him, or he presents. Jesus' authority, which is not really what you would expect from a servant. Mm. So that's a puzzle. Yeah, one of those paradoxes, right? Paradoxes. Uh, yeah, he isn't uh, denying the, the kingship of God, uh, just as he isn't denying the, um, the judgment that is that belongs to Christ and is his and, and will be his even more in the, the day of judgment. Uh, he's just not making that his, his emphasis. He's not highlighting that in his writing style, but um, he's, yeah, again, not denying that. He's the servant of the kingdom, so that's where he gets his authority. Absolutely. Yeah, his kingdom is not of this world, right? All right, good. Well, Jerry pointed out um, one of the, the big differences in how these guys, these authors, uh, begin their gospel. So Mark starts off his gospel saying, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Uh, this is, again, uh, unique to, to the other authors and the take that they're uh, approaching in their writing of their accounts of Jesus and his ministry, his life, his death, and burial and resurrection. And again, if we have this understanding that these people had that we were talking about last week, these source critics who want to come to the text and they want to impose their own understanding on the text, they might come to the conclusion that um, Mark 
didn't have the information that Matthew or Luke had, that he, um, his understanding started with Jesus' ministry when he was 30 years old. However, we know that's not the case. He just has a different emphasis, a different purpose in why he's writing. And so that's why uh, he doesn't start the same way that Matthew or Luke do. Matthew and Luke start with the birth of Christ. They go back to um, Luke even before that. He talks about um, Elizabeth and, and John and goes through that whole progression and Mary. And uh, he's very meticulous in his, his writing and his thinking. And John goes back even before that. He says, well, in the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God. The Word was God. That's his starting point for his gospel. But Mark starts here with the, the ministry of Christ. He's going to get into his baptism shortly. And he starts with the, the gospel of, of Jesus. Uh, this word gospel has been around for a long time. It's not unique to the Bible like a lot of other words are. There are some words that are um, just unique to, to Scripture. Paul himself, he'll actually like make up and invent words. He'll take different prefixes and suffixes and kind of combine them together. Uh, but gospel, euangelion, uh, was around in the culture and in Greco-Roman society, it was used always in the plural. So it's to speak of one good tiding or one joyful tiding, one piece of good news amongst many. So uh, somebody might come home from work and say, hey, I have uh, a good tiding that I got a raise. Or somebody might say, I, I have a good tiding that I found a, a really good deal at a marketplace. That's a, a good tiding, a piece of good news, right? What the New Testament is different and unique in that it always uses the gospel, this word euangelion, in the singular, that there is one good news, there is one good tiding, one joyful tiding. And it's always centered around the, the person, the work of, of Jesus, right? Uh, Mark starts with the gospel, the good news of Jesus. And the, the key text for what is the gospel in 1 Corinthians 15 goes through that. Uh, Paul says, well, this, I want to deliver to you the gospel, the gospel that was delivered unto me, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. He was buried, he was risen again on the third day according to the scriptures. That is what the gospel is, the singular gospel. But again, it was uh, understood in that society. It, was, it had a, a presence in that society. It was just used as one of many good tidings or many pieces of good news. And it had a, a, a broader sense, like I just used it, like a, a good tiding that somebody might have gotten a raise or found a good deal. But it also had a, a more narrow technical sense <clears throat> that it was used in the Greco-Roman society to introduce uh, a, a royal figure, somebody who uh, was arriving or triumphing in like an emperor or a king, a royal figure who was coming to the throne. And there's a, an old inscription that was found that was discovered through archaeological digs recently from, uh, it was written about Caesar Augustus, and it was found, um, it had the inscription of 9 BC, and it says, whereas the birthday of the god, lowercase g, we know, right, Augustus, was of the world, uh, good tidings or joyful tidings or the gospel that have come to men through him. So it was uh, praising Caesar Augustus and saying, this is a, a joyful tiding. This is good news. This is a euangelion. Uh, talking about the inauguration of this king, the birth of this king. Well, Mark takes that and flips it on his head and says, I have the good news for you. The good news of Jesus Christ, the inauguration of the one true king. 
Jesus Christ. Uh, he completely takes that secular understanding and, and flips it on its head. The, I'm sure that you'll uh, recognize this quote from Isaiah 52.7 um, as being stolen from Paul and used in Romans 10. But it says in Isaiah 52.7, How lovely on the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who announces peace and brings good news of happiness, who announces salvation and says in Zion, your God reigns. Uh, that's the, the good news that Mark wants to talk about, that he wants to highlight that this Savior, this gospel of Jesus Christ is here. Um, again, going back to Romans, Romans 1.16, written to these same people, uh, Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it, the gospel, is the power of God unto salvation for everyone who believes, first for the Jew and then for the Gentile. So uh, Mark wants to highlight this gospel that um, is centered and focused around this person of Jesus Christ. So he says in, in Mark 1, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus. Do you guys remember what the name Jesus means? Yeah, Yahweh is salvation, right? And we can look at uh, Matthew's account in Matthew 1, 21, where the angel's talking to Joseph and telling him, your, your wife's going to have a son. She's bearing a child, and uh, you're to call his name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. That's uh, even wrapped up in the name of Jesus. So Mark says, this is the gospel of Jesus. And in this one verse... Um, we see that he has two different titles for Christ. What are the two titles that we see for Christ in Mark 1.1? 1, 1? Two titles we see for Jesus. <clears throat> yeah. See that Freudian slip I said? The two titles we see for Christ. When Christ itself is a title, it's not the, the last name of Jesus, as we'll, we'll often use it, but it has purpose and meaning um, it's talking about how Jesus is uh, the anointed one, the Messiah. And then he also calls him the Son of God. And I have this quote here from Walter Kaiser. <clears throat> he says, The word Messiah or anointed one, or in Greek Christ, is taken from Psalm 2.2 and Daniel 9.25 and 26. The term took its meaning from the Jewish practice of anointing their priests and kings but this term was applied in a special sense to the future ruler who would be sent from God to sit on the throne of David forever. Uh, let's see. Can we get somebody to check out that verse, Psalm 2-2? Will somebody look up Psalm 2-2 for us? Again, this is um, talking about the, the Messiah. This is where we get this word from. This word Christ is the, the most used word for, or most used title of Jesus, applied to Jesus throughout the Gospels, throughout the New Testament, and it has purpose, as meaning, uh, and it goes back in large part to this verse. So who's got Psalm 2-2 for us? All right, Christina. The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying. All right, good. So it's talking about that word anointed there. Uh, is a word for Messiah or the word for Christ. And it's a, Psalm 2 is a, a messianic psalm. It's all focused on, on Jesus and the coming of the Messiah. Um, we can see the same thing in, in Daniel, talking about these uh, messianic prophecies that are, are dealing with uh, Jesus and pointing to the coming Messiah. 
And Walter Kaiser, in this article I found, he goes on to give a list of definite clues about the coming Messiah. And we're going to go through them. We're not going to spend a, a lot of time on these Old Testament uh, prophecies or, or clues about who the Messiah is. Uh, you might just want to jot down some of the references, but he gives several of them here. Um, we'll go through them in pretty quick order. In Genesis 3.15, it says that the Messiah would be the seed or the offspring of a woman and would crush the head of Satan. So this is the very first messianic prophecy um, talking about um, how there's going to be uh, a Messiah to come from the seed of a woman. It gets more specific in Genesis 12 that he would come from the seed or the offspring of Abraham and would bless all the nations of the earth. And then uh, if we could get somebody to look up this one, this is a, a good verse we need to read. Deuteronomy 18.15 talks about how he would be a prophet like Moses to whom God said, we must listen. So Deuteronomy 18.15, somebody have that verse for us? It's a really good prophecy. All right. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. All right. So this is Moses talking. Um, and uh, there's a, another verse that talks about how uh, God's going to raise up a, a better prophet, one who's greater than Moses. And that's pointing to the coming Messiah, to Jesus, the, the Christ. All right, Micah 5.2, it's a popular verse, says that he would be born in Bethlehem of Judah, despite how small and insignificant it is. That's where the Messiah would come from. Uh, Isaiah 7.14, a Christmas verse, that he would be born of a virgin. In 2 Samuel 7.16, it said that he would have a throne, a kingdom, and a dynasty, or a house, starting with King David, that would last forever. So again, these are all Old Testament um, verses that are talking about the coming Messiah, how to look for the Messiah, how to recognize the coming Messiah. Isaiah 9.6 and 7, another Christmas verse, says that he would be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, and would possess an everlasting kingdom. Uh, this is a, a great verse um, highlighting the deity of God because it calls him mighty God. However, a common misunderstanding when it's talking about him being the everlasting father. A lot of people, um, modalists or um, oneness people who say that um, there's only one person in, in God, I'll say that Jesus is a father. We should understand this verse as talking about how Jesus is the father from eternity, how he is um, the the preeminent one, kind of going back to Colossians, when we were studying Colossians, um, how it says in Colossians 1, 15 or 16, that he is a firstborn from all creation, how he has um, preeminence. He is king and Lord and God over all creation. He is the father from all eternity. Um, all right, Zechariah 9 talks about how the Messiah would ride into Jerusalem on a donkey. That's familiar, right? Uh, righteous and having salvation, coming with gentleness. Isaiah 53, um, the fifth gospel, if you will, says that he would be pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. And just a, a few verses later, says that he would die among the wicked ones, but he would be buried with the rich. Again, I'm sure that uh, with our 21st century New Testament eyes, we can see how Jesus perfectly fits all these different things. Uh, that's why Isaiah 53 is like the go-to text when you're talking with 
a, a Jewish person who denies the, the fact that Jesus was the Christ, that he was the Messiah. Um, but we see all these prophecies are written beforehand. Psalm 1610, another messianic psalm, says that he would be resurrected from the grave, for God would not allow his Holy One to suffer decay. Daniel 7, 13, 14, that he would come again from the clouds of heaven as the Son of Man. Malachi 4, 2, that he would be the Son of Righteousness for all who revere him and look for his coming again. And then, this is the last one, Zechariah 12, 10, that he is the one whom Israel will one day recognize as the one that they pierced, causing bitter grief. Um, that's a, a great verse talking about um, just, just that, how uh, the eyes of Israel are going to be opened up because it was to them that this promise was made that they would have this Messiah. Again, going all the way back to Genesis 3.15 to Genesis 12, that this Messiah would be born of a woman, born under law, that's Galatians, but um, how? it was for the, the, the Jewish people, for Abraham and his seed, that this Messiah would come and offer um, salvation. Uh, this last week I was listening to a, a sermon by Spurgeon, and he was talking about the Messiah in a completely different context, but I had to write down this quote and, and share this quote with you guys. Uh, he says that he is Christ, that is, he is God's Messiah. God would not send him unless he could guarantee him. If God should send into his world a Savior who could not save, then God would have no mercy. God's appointing and sending Christ is a guarantee of Christ's success. The very fact that God said that he would send a Savior, the fact that he said he would send a Messiah, um, guarantees the fact that Christ is going to be successful in his coming, in his, his work of salvation. He's going to do everything that God had um, established for him to do. So, again, just want to point out the fact that the Old Testament is highlighting the, the coming of Christ. And right off the bat here, we see that Mark is identifying Jesus as this Messiah. He's acknowledging him as the Son of God. This is his, his main point. He says, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And uh, I told you that uh, Christ or Messiah is the most often used word or title for Jesus. But Mark himself, he doesn't use that word too often at all. Only seven times does he use the word Christ throughout the, the whole gospel, all 16 chapters. He only uses it seven times. And the next time after this time here in Mark 1.1 1, 1, that he uses it isn't until Mark chapter 8. And in another important verse um, in Mark 8.29, that's where um, Jesus had just asked his disciples, who do people think that I am? What do they say about me? And they answered, well, some people say John the Baptist. Some people say uh, maybe Elijah or Jeremiah or one of the other prophets. And then here in Mark 8, 29, uh, he continued by questioning them. And he says, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answered and he said to him, you are the Christ, the son of the living God, uh, is what Matthew adds on his account in Matthew 16. But this is the next time that he uses this word Christ. You are the Christ. And then at the end of the book of Mark, in Mark 15, 39, it says, when the centurion, who was standing right in front of him, saw the way that he breathed his last, he said, truly this man was the Son of God. So Mark is trying to let his people know that Jesus is the suffering servant. He is the Messiah. He is the Son of God, the, the Christ. 
uh, this is his thesis statement, and he's got it at the, the beginning, at the middle, at the end of his book, and he's going to um, kind of make a case for this as we go throughout the book of Mark, that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God. Any thoughts or questions on any of that? That's kind of a lot. All right. Well, let's keep going on to verse 2 and look at the, the Christ, the Son of God. In Mark 1, 2, and 3, uh, we're going to see a, a quote from the Old Testament. Now, uh, just like Mark's use of the word Christ, he doesn't have a whole lot of emphasis or a whole lot of use, a whole lot of quotes from the Old Testament. He has uh, roughly a dozen or so that he quotes from the Old Testament because, again, He's not writing to the Jewish people, right, who've already embraced the Old Testament. He's writing to the, uh, to the Romans, and they don't have the same kind of upbringing and background in the Old Testament as the Jewish people does. So I want us to put on our, our thinking caps a, a little bit. A good Bible study student will always ask questions of the text. What's going on here? Why does the author say what they say, when they say it, and the way that they say it? Um, and... We need to, to ask those kinds of questions. In the same sense, a, a good Bible student won't start with the question, what is this saying to me? Because that's not the, the point of the text, right? We need to ask, what is the author's original intent to his original audience? And so I want to ask you guys, why do you suppose Mark here is starting this gospel that he's just introduced, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, with an Old Testament quote. What do you think he might be getting at? What is his purpose in starting off this gospel with a quote? Yeah, what do you think? Probably to establish credibility. Absolutely. Yes. Good. Yeah, so similar to how we just did, we looked at the, the Old Testament and uh, it's establishing the, the coming Messiah and how the Messiah would come. Mark, I think, wants to reiterate that this isn't a new teaching. This has Old Testament roots. This has a, a foundation in the Old Testament. And again, he just gave his, his thesis statement, right? His, um, this is his main point, what he wants to talk about us to us in this gospel. Um, look for that today in, in Jeremy's sermon. See if he gives a, a thesis statement because uh, he typically will at the beginning. He'll introduce and say what his main point is and kind of reiterate that throughout and then kind of wrap up and summarize and give again his thesis statement, what it is that he wants us to draw from that text in Joshua 24. Um, so be, be looking for that. But then he's going to um, not... Well, Jeremy will do this too, but uh, Mark is going to establish his thesis statement, and then he's going to defend and back it up. He's going to give uh, proof text defending his thesis statement, like you said, with the authority of Scripture, not just some random thought that he's making up. He's saying this is grounded in the Old Testament. Here is the authority that it's based upon. So let's look at um, what we have here in Mark 1, 2, and 3. He begins his gospel with this rare quote. And it says, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet, 
Behold, I send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, make ready the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Now that, um, while he says it, he's quoting from Isaiah in the, the text. It's written in Isaiah. Um, he's kind of jumbled together a few different quotes from a few different Old Testament uh, authors. And this one's taken from Malachi 3. Malachi 3.1 says, Behold, I am going to send my messenger, and he will clear the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. Now, that's an awesome verse, because he says that he is sending his messenger, and he will clear the way before me. Who is talking in that passage? God himself is talking, right? Yahweh the Lord is talking, saying he's going to send his messenger, and his messenger will clear the path before him, before Yahweh. And here in Mark, Mark is quoting this and applying it to Christ, right? That um, Christ is the one who, whose way is being prepared, whose way is being laid out before him by the forerunner. Uh, that's that's pretty amazing stuff. And the significance of that is that God is saying that he is going to uh, take up residence, that he is going to dwell among his people. The God who, back in Deuteronomy 4, we're told is spirit, just like we're told in John 4, that God is spirit, we should worship him in spirit and in truth, that he is going to come and he is going to clear the way before them. And Mark combines this quote with this other quote from Isaiah, the latter part of this verse that part there in orange is from Isaiah 40 verse 3 which says that a voice is calling clear the way for the Lord in the wilderness make smooth in the desert a highway for our God um, actually real quick let me go back to that last verse um, one thing we see there in, in Malachi 3 down at the towards the middle says that um, the Lord whom you seek he will suddenly come to his temple that's exactly what Jesus does right I don't, don't think that's any coincidence at all that John 2 talks about how um, Jesus begins his ministry by going and, and clean, cleaning out the temple, um, just like Malachi 3 said. But then over here in Isaiah 40, um, again, it's identifying that um, this voice calling, this one who is preparing the way, who is clearing the path, is to clear the way for the Lord. Um, Hopefully you know that whenever we see Lord in all caps like that, that it is speaking of Yahweh. Uh, that is the, the tetragrammaton. That is God's special covenant name, his unique name that says that uh, he is the self-existent one, that he has no beginning, no end, that he is from everlasting to everlasting, that he has a saity, uh, life within himself. We get that from back in Exodus three fourteen when Moses is at the burning bush and he says, well, what am I supposed to say to, to Pharaoh? Who am I? And God says, well, you tell him that I am that I am has sent me, that you are the messenger of the timeless one. You are the messenger of the one who uh, has no beginning. He has no mom and dad, no creator. You are to go and you're to declare that to, to Pharaoh, that you are to let his people go, let the people of the timeless one go. And now uh, Mark is using the same passage to say, that there's a messenger that is going before Jesus, who is that same Lord, that same Yahweh. And he is to prepare his path. He is to prepare his way 
so that he can begin his ministry, the ministry of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. So, now do we have any thoughts or questions after looking at those quotes from Malachi and uh, from Isaiah? Are you starting to see the, the picture what Mark is doing? He's highlighting who Jesus is, saying that this is his gospel. Um, he's getting ready to introduce John the Baptist and talking about how this is all founded and established in the Old Testament. He's not just making up something new, not just talking about some guy off the street, but this is prophetic. This has been told before, and God has established this from even before time began so that this could be um, delivered to them in this way in this day. Any other thoughts or questions? Yeah, yeah, there was a, a good Jewish following in Rome, and especially later, um, as we mentioned last week or a couple weeks ago, we're not quite sure when this was written. Um, 50 to 60 is the, the date that most people put on it. Um, but yeah, by the time we get to um, Ephesus, and yeah, there's, there's a lot of um, Judaizers and Judaism going throughout there, so it has to have been well established at this point. But I think more to the point why he's doing this is to establish his authority. I think if he was trying to appeal to their background, then there'd be a lot more quotes from the Old Testament. Um, but that's not to say that there isn't uh, an understanding of Judaism within Rome. Well, I think it was to distinguish because the Romans were pagans. Yeah. Yeah, we talked about that when we were going through Corinthians, and Corinthian was, or Corinth was very Roman, right? Um, and they had this understanding, this desire for knowledge, for extra uh, wisdom. Uh, but in Colossians 1, it says, God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things that, which are strong, the base things of the world to despise and the despised, God has chosen the things that are not, so that he may nullify the things that are, so that no man may boast before God. And so, yeah, Rome had this um, exaltation of philosophy and, and whatever is new and um, the, these new ideas, new thoughts. But yeah, you're right. He's establishing it in the truth of God's word that goes back to very creation. Good. All right, well, let's take a look at John the Baptist. Um, next week, we're going to spend a little bit more time looking at John's baptism because John's baptism is unique. We'll look at uh, other baptisms as well, not just John's baptism, but the effect of that on Jesus and believer's baptism, spirit baptism, all that. So we're not going to focus so much on that today. But I do want to look at the, the person of John and the ministry of John as we see it in these, these next several verses up through verse 8. But before we do that, uh, somebody remind me, what are the, the basic steps of Bible study?
What do we need to do when we're first coming to the text? Good. Yeah, perfect. So, um, if you guys will remember back to the uh, hermeneutic study that we went through a little while ago, it talked about how um, we want to start with just doing that, seeing what it says, observation, and then we move to interpretation, and then application. We can fit some principalization in there in between interpretation and application, but we want to see what the text says and then seek to, to understand it. And then after that, that's when we can start asking the questions, okay, well, what does this mean for me? But we have to first start off with the author's original intent, who he's writing to, and um, observing what the text says. So let's go through, and I want you to look at uh, these verses, verses 4 through 8. And I'm going to go ahead and read them, but as I do that, I want you to be looking at what does this say about the person of John and the ministry of John. Let's observe the text and see what we can uh, glean from these words. So starting in Mark 1, verse 4, again, right after um, these quotes about the, the forerunner who's going to come and prepare the way. Um, now Mark is identifying that forerunner as John the Baptist. He starts off, John the Baptist, appearing in the wilderness, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea was going out to him, and all the people of Jerusalem and they were being baptized by him in the Jordan River, confessing their sins. John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist. And his diet was locust and wild honey. And he was preaching and saying, After me one is coming who is mightier than I, and I am not fit to stoop down and untie the thong of his sandals. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. So, starting with, the person of John. What are some things in there that we see about who John is, the person of John? He's a hillbilly. He's a hillbilly. That's a good word for it. Yeah. <laughs> his big weirdo with a big beard walking up and got all kinds of honey and locusts stuck in it. Yeah. All right. He's a hillbilly. What else do we see? Where was this ministry taking place at? Where was he doing his hillbillying? And the, the wilderness, right? It was in the wilderness. Wasn't it at the Jordan River too? Yep, Jordan River, good. We've already seen that he was prophesied by Isaiah, right? He's not just some Joe Schmo hillbilly, but he has a, a background as a hillbilly. What was he doing in the wilderness? Baptizing. Yeah, he was baptizing people. Um, going back up into verse 3, um, which I skipped over my reading, says that he was crying in the wilderness, make ready the way of the Lord. So he's fulfilling his ministry, his role as the forerunner. Um, what, did, what did he look like? What was his hillbilly appearance? Camel's hair, right? He wore camel's hair and a, a leather belt around his waist. And he ate locusts and wild honey. What about his, his attitude? What kind of attitude did John have? What was his demeanor? Seemed like he was really on fire for the Lord and for repentance. 
Yeah, good. Yeah, he was humble, right? I think it's John says that he must increase and I must decrease. That's the, the mentality of John. That's, that's awesome. I, I don't think that I'm alone in disliking proud people and um, liking humble people. That sense of humility, I think, just really screams, um, I don't know. It, it is a, an identifying uh, factor of believer. There are humble people who aren't believers, but um, yeah, I just like humble people, I guess. And John was definitely humble. And then one thing I have on my list that um, is not so much drawn from this text is that he is bold and he didn't fear men. It's more something we get from the parallel passages in, in Luke and Matthew. But um, one thing that a lot of the, the commentators that I read really focused on and highlighted was the fact that he was crying out in the wilderness. Now, remember that Mark wasn't writing to the Jewish people, but John, he was ministering amongst the Jewish people, right? He was out in the wilderness of Israel. And so what would that word wilderness um, bring up for these Jewish people that John was ministering to? What kind of um, reminder would that give to them? What would bring... Yeah, the 40 years that we're just um, overcoming in our, our study of the book of Joshua, right? How Israel, for 40 years, they were wandering in the wilderness. How they were there um, with the, the same kind of attitude, same kind of mentality that a lot of these people who were coming to John would supposedly have. That they're there for uh, repentance. That they had uh, messed up and uh, they were needing to uh, be renewed. Um, so he is there in the wilderness crying out to these people who would have that same understanding of the wilderness. But um, let's look briefly at the, the ministry of John. We've already talked about how he was there. He was preaching repentance. Um, he was there to, to make straight his past. He was there as a forerunner of Christ, preparing the way for Jesus himself. He was there baptizing in the Jordan. He was uh, condemning easy believism. Again, something that we don't see so much in this passage, but he was uh, preaching a, a baptism of repentance. That you can't just uh, say, okay, well, yeah, I, I want to be God's, I want to follow after him and, and call it good. That's not who John was. He uh, condemned our modern understanding of easy believism. He points to Jesus. Again, that's so tied with his humility that he wanted Jesus to increase and he was willing to decrease himself couple other things that we don't see in this passage is that he rebukes false teachers and he preaches uh, a judgment against them. So I want to turn to Luke real quick. Let's look at Luke's parallel passage in Luke chapter 3 and we'll see some of these uh, different aspects of John's ministry of him rebuking false teachers and preaching judgment. So starting in verse 1 of chapter 3, and just remember who Luke is. He is a physician. He is taking this very detailed, excellent, or detailed account for excellent Theophilus. And listen to how detailed these first couple of verses are. It says, Now in the fifteenth year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea, and Herod was tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip was tetrarch of the region of Iturea, and Trichon Trachonitis and Lysanias was tetrarch of Abilene 
in the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. That's a little bit different from how Mark uh, started off his conversation about John, right? That's very detailed, very specific. Um, one commentator I read just summarized that up by saying it was some random day on a summer in AD 26. Um, but that's what Luke is trying to convey. And it says in verse 3 that he came into all the district around the Jordan, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, make ready the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Every ravine will be filled, every mountain and hill will be brought low, the crooked will become straight, and the rough roads smooth, and all the flesh will see the salvation of God. So he began saying to the crowds, to all who were going out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Therefore, bear fruits in keeping with repentance, and do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham for our father. For I say to you that from these stones, God is able to raise up children to Abraham. Indeed, the axe is ready, already laid at the root of the trees. So every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So in those last few verses, that's where we see that John was bold and that he didn't fear man because he's out there and he's speaking to, uh, in this verse, it just says that he was speaking to the crowds. But if we compare this with Matthew 3, 7, Matthew 3, 7 says that when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming for baptism, he said to them, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? So he's talking to these religious elite people who have this uh, very non-humble attitude. They are very puffed up and very proud and, and bold, and they think that they are already right with God. And he's calling out to them, and he's saying, you're just a brood of vipers. You guys are, are so wicked. You're so slimy. Um, this baptism isn't for you. Remember, he is preaching a, a baptism of repentance. And he calls them out in verse 8 of Luke 3. He says, therefore, bear fruits in keeping with repentance. And so that's where we see that he is opposed to this idea of easy believism. Um, it's, uh, it's, that's the, the title that our, our modern Christian society has given to uh, this idea that we can just pray a prayer and raise a hand and say, yes, I believe in Jesus. And then you can go on living your life however you want. But if we are in Christ and we are going to be changed, we are going to be redeemed and regenerated. We're going to live a life that is marked by that regeneration, a new life in Christ. And that's what John is calling for here, to bear fruits in keeping with repentance. He's saying, um, he John's not saying this, but we could say, uh, you say that you're a Christian, live like a Christian, right? And John is saying, well, you're saying that you are a, a follower of God, that you are one who is um, looking after God, desiring God. You need to, to live a life that, that reflects that. And we see that he is preaching uh, judgment. Um, well, down in, in the middle of verse 8, after saying that, he says, do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham for our father. Uh, for I say to you that God is able to take stones and to raise up children of Abraham from them. So he's saying your, your background, your, your pedigree, none of that really matters. Uh, he's not looking for um, people who are putting stock in their pedigree and their deeds, but 
uh, he's, he's calling them out despite their lineage, saying that they need a new heart, a new mind. They need a, a complete change of thought, a change of direction and action. And in verse 9, uh, that's where we see the aspect of judgment. He says, indeed, the axe is already laid at the root of the trees. He's talking about how Jesus is going to come in judgment. Um, and that's why I think Mark leaves this section out, because that's not his focus. His focus is Jesus as a suffering servant. Again, not to say that Mark thought Jesus wasn't going to judge, but that's not what he's trying to convey to his readers. That's not the point that he's trying to get across. So um, this preaching of John the Baptist, this preaching of uh, repentance, this baptism of repentance, should cause us to ask ourselves this very important question of what is repentance? And especially being in Utah, this is a vastly important question to us because the Church of Latter-day Saints, they have a completely different understanding of repentance than what we do. Uh, I remember when I was a, a teenager and I was exploring Mormonism, wondering if that's something that um, I wanted to embrace for myself. They claim to be a second testament of Jesus Christ. So I want to explore that claim. And I was told the ABCDs of repentance. You guys ever heard that from a Latter-day Saint perspective? All right, well, I got them here. So this is according to Latter-day Saints, right? Uh, this is not our teaching, not something that we embrace. But they say that repentance is to first acknowledge that, quote-unquote, it was wrong, to beg for forgiveness, to correct any problem that you may have caused, and then D, to don't do it again. Um, that D is uh, really a, a big point of contention. And I went and I got a couple of articles off of their church website, um, lds.org or whatever it relocates to. I think it's now the, the churchofjesuschrist.org. But this is from their website, which means that it's official church doctrine. And it says, Our sincere sorrow should lead us to forsake, to stop our sins. I didn't add that stuff in there, by the way. That's part of the quote. It says, If we have stolen something, we will steal no more. If we have lied, we will lie no more. If we have committed adultery, we will stop. The Lord revealed to the prophet Joseph Smith, By this you may know if a man repenteth of his sins. Behold, he will confess them and forsake them. That's from D&C, um, Doctrine and Covenants 58.43. Another quote from them says, To make our repentance complete, we must keep the commandments of the Lord. See D&C 132, which I have at the bottom there. It says, Nevertheless, he that repents and does the commandments of the Lord shall be forgiven. We are not fully repentant if we do not pay tithes or keep the Sabbath day holy or obey the word of wisdom. So before I get into um, our understanding of repentance, anybody else want to take a shot, take a stab at why we shouldn't hold to that understanding of repentance and why that um, differs from a, a biblical definition of repentance? Yeah, we, we can't keep the commands of God, right? We're. <laughs> yeah. Amen. John 1 8 and 10, right? And if we say that we don't sin, we go further. We make God a liar uh, because He has told us that we're sinful. Christina?
even consider not, not going on? Not yeah. Yeah, definitely a possibility. Not just suicide, but um, drug usage and uh, plastic surgery. And yeah, Utah leads the nation in many of those categories, those vain outward categories or the categories that show that um, there's a, a heavy burden um, placed upon people. Good. Yeah. <laughs> you have someone there to keep you in check. Amen. Well, that's that's not addressing the heart. Yep. That's not addressing what's happening inside of a man or woman. Good. And and we speak of Mormonism because we're in that culture, but this is really all kinds of false religions, right? Uh, one of the biggest differences between or one of the biggest issues of not just Latter day Saint theology but other uh, errant theologies that they confuse justification and sanctification. They think that uh, we have to somehow earn our, our way to God. But if righteousness can be gained through the law, then Christ died for nothing. Um, John 8, uh, 28 and 29, I think, they asked Jesus, what must we do to do the works that God requires? What, give me the list. What are all the works? And Jesus says, this is the work, the singular work of God, to believe in the one that he has sent. That is what we must do to be justified, to be made right before God, to be declared righteous. Uh, to believe in Christ, and then um, we will be uh, we will be able to bear fruits in keeping with repentance afterwards. But that comes after repentance. The fruit is not a part of repentance. So let me just run through this list real quick that all popped up there at once because I didn't put it on there right. Um, biblical repentance does not mean to stop sinning. It's not equivalent to obedience, but instead it's a, a change of mind. That's the, the Greek word there, metanoia which literally means afterthought. Meta means after, and noia means thought. And the idea is that um, there's this understanding that comes into our mind, and because of that understanding, we change our mind. We, we readjust because we have uh, a better understanding of who God is. That's why Proverbs 1, 7 says that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, the beginning of wisdom, because we have to have this understanding, this change of mind to realize that, God is God, and, and we are not. We need to fear him. We need to revere him. We need to realize our, um, our dependence upon him. That is where repentance begins. Uh, repentance does result in a change of action. You can see that in, in Acts. Um, that We see that here in John, that John is saying, you need to bear fruits in keeping with repentance. But that is the result of repentance. It's not equivalent with repentance. Repentance does not mean to, to stop sinning, to keep the law, to not do it again, like all those quotes that we just looked at. 
uh, repentance is not a work that we do to earn salvation. We need to realize that for sure. And let's look up these last few verses here and we'll take a look at that. I'll grab Acts 5.31 if somebody could start making their way to Acts 11 and 2 Timothy, or 1 Timothy, yeah, 2 Timothy 2, that'd be good. So Acts 5.31, speaking of repentance and where it comes from, it says that he is the one whom God exalts to his right hand um, as a prince and a savior to grant repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. So this is saying that God is the one who grants repentance to Israel. Does somebody have 11.18 for us? We have a shy class this time. All right, I'll grab 11.18. Acts 11.18 says, When they heard this, they quieted down and glorified God, saying, Well then, God has granted to the Gentiles also the repentance that leads to life. So not only does God grant repentance to Israel, he's the one who grants repentance to the Gentiles. And then uh, Acts, or 2 Timothy 2.25 says the same thing. It's actually a prayer of Paul that God would grant them repentance so that they would see and understand and believe. And this last line here says that turning from sin is not the definition of repentance, but it is one of the results of genuine faith-based repentance. And I actually printed off and brought a couple of articles, or one article, a couple copies of one article from gotquestions.org on what is repentance, because that is so foundational to Christianity and what Christianity is and the difference between uh, what we believe and other faiths and religions believe. So next week, we're going to be looking at the baptism of John and baptism in general. So Bring all of your questions on baptism, your thoughts on baptism. Realize there are several different baptisms in the Bible, and they're not all equivalent. That's a good place to start. Let's go ahead and pray. God, we thank you once again for your word. Thank you for these people. Thank you for your church body. And pray that you would draw us closer to each other and closer to you as we seek to worship you uh, in spirit and in truth. We pray this in your name. Amen.